my five-year anniversary, and uh, I would just say, can you believe it's been five years? Time flies when you're having such a good time, doesn't it? <laughs> Is that what we're having, a good time, right? Uh, we've been... Uh, <laughs> We've been walking through Romans 12. Again, if this is your first Sunday, we've been walking through Romans 12 and vital signs of what a healthy church should look like. The Lord has told us that in His Word. But we're going to take a break from that just today, uh, partly because it's been beating me up too much, um, and because next week we'll pick back up, and it's love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor, and then don't be slothful in zeal. You know, if there's any place we should not be lazy, it's ministry for the Lord. And we're going to be challenged to be fervent in spirit. So should the Lord give us next week, we're going to, we're going to pick, uh, pick back up there. But we're going to share. I want to share with you today a verse that I never forget. It's Hebrews thirteen seventeen, And would love for you to turn there. We're going to get to it in, in just a moment. But as, as I think about five years of being here, I want to say to you that out of all the churches I've pastored, you're my favorite. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> I mean it. I'm very sincere, without wax, genuine. I pulled the mask off. Uh, you guys are, are my favorite. The other thing I would say is, what were you thinking when you hired a 28-year-old who'd never been a pastor before? What were you, what were you thinking? The, person, the one person who voted no, they were smart. They were smart, right? Uh, as I think about being here five years, I think about a couple things. I think about the Lord's providence in bringing us to Crosspoint. And some of you don't know, but in December of 2003, sat across uh, a table, Tara and I did, from a man named Jerry Passman, uh, who happened to join our church last week. And uh, we purchased a house right over here in a neighborhood called the Highland Club. And we were, I was finishing up my PhD in New Orleans. I just needed to be close enough to drive to New Orleans. I just needed an airport because I was doing itinerant ministry. Crosspoint was not on my radar, except for every time we drove by here multiple times a day, we were like, that is a weird looking church. Uh, we even came once, and this uh, one summer, Dr. Jackson was uh, interim at that point, and we were good friends with Dr. Jackson, and so we we came and visited uh, at some point in a, in a summer service, and were invited to Sunday school, and appreciated how warm uh, the church was. We were actually members of the Struma at that point, but long term, we didn't think we were going to stay in Baton Rouge. We just uh, I had graduated from LSU, and you know, when you go into ministry, you're supposed to go off far remote places where you know no one. And so we really just saw purchasing a house. We were living downtown in New Orleans. We're pregnant with Arabella. We were pregnant with Arabella and uh, knew we wanted to, to be able to have a place initially and uh, had a backyard and some of these things. And really Baton Rouge was, uh, was a passing through point for us in, in thought. But well, what would happen is we would begin to have conversations with the church. One of those was First Baptist Cleveland, Tennessee, and they wanted me to be a co-pastor position. And in 2004, we really journeyed a lot with them. And I did their summer camps for their middle school and their high school and, uh, and met with their, their pastor. And they flew us back up, and we would have a time to meet with their search committee. And my wife would really only ask them one question. She would say, if I bring children of another race here, will they be welcome? That was the main question she had for every search committee that we, that we met with. Having taught in inner city New Orleans and having had the privilege to bring those students with us to church and to take them to lunch afterward and into our own homes. And there's students that still will call Miss Moffitt. They, they haven't quite grasped. She's married. But uh, they will still call her and, uh, and, and stay in touch to this day. And so we met with that search team and, and went through this process, but it became very evident to me that if I were to go there, I felt it would have more potential for dividing that congregation than uniting that congregation. I felt that the, the other co-pastor and myself weren't completely in, in line theologically and then philosophically in how you do ministry. And one of the questions they asked was, uh, we, we want you to do church outside the box. And, you know, and they would say, you know, your age group goes to the lake. They had a lake there. They go to the lake on Sunday. You know, how can we get them into our church? And I said, you know, I think one of the first questions we need to ask is how can we take the church to them? How can we take the church to them? And so as we began to, to dialogue, just really felt like uh, that was not the place the Lord was leading us. In the middle, a pastor from uh, a church in North Carolina called Ash, uh, Biltmore Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina, he called. And he asked me to consider being a teaching pastor. But all he kept talking about was they have 4,500 people, 4,500 people, and, and he wanted me to just be the teaching pastor. And, and one of the things was they were thinking about starting an early Sunday morning service that would be Southern gospel music only. 
and it thought it was a perfect fit for me. I really did. I was, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. So uh, uh, it didn't take me very long. It took about a week of praying to know that that was probably not the place where the Lord would lead us. And so we found ourselves, the, the church of 4,500 and the church of 2,500, we just, we just didn't feel the freedom to move to those places. And we had actually gone to Tupelo for a little bit and was driving back from Tupelo when a guy named Alan Jackson called. And he said, hey, I've got to be in t- out of town uh, would you preach for me one Sunday in August at Cross Point? And uh, so we checked our calendars, and I said, sure. And, uh, and so we, we preached here. It was on August 28th in uh, 2005. So we, just, we pulled out of our neighborhood, took a right. We took a left at the light, took a right, and took a right in here. And uh, it took us all of about four minutes to get here that morning. I still remember the text I preached. I preached Philippians 3 and the pursuit of Christ on that Sunday and encouraged a congregation that didn't have a pastor, that you didn't have to have a pastor to follow Christ. Christ is our senior pastor and that we should be as Paul and, and striving towards him. And and uh, still remember that passage. We went to lunch with a man named Al Jones and his wife Mary Gaden, and we went right across the interstate uh, to a restaurant that's been named a couple different things now. I think currently it's Galatoire's, but it was something else when we went. And we had a conversation, but not really about Crosspoint at all. And I learned that he was the head of the pastor search team, but he didn't mention the search team or the church at all, really. And I thought that was unique. And so we journeyed through the whole whole lunch, and it was an incredible time. My wife being from Mississippi and their Mississippi roots, we really enjoyed the conversation. I thought that might be the end of it. So we went back home, packed up our patio stuff in the garage, and headed to Leesville to ride out a small storm called Katrina. Uh, we found ourselves once Katrina hit, we came back, and I found myself in, in the office at Cross Point on Wednesday checking on Dr. Jackson to see if there was anything we could do to help him. While we were there, there was a call from what was then the Judson Baptist Association saying that they needed ministers to go to the PMAC and pray with people in the triages that they'd set up. So Tara and I went. It was the first time she was considered Baptist clergy, but I thought, well, we'll give it a shot, right? And so we went and, and got to pray with folks. From there, we went to the River Center and uh, looked for former students of hers, looked for former teachers, looked for anyone we knew. And on the, on the first time we were there, she walked right up to this woman named Vishanda, who was on the second floor, who was sleeping right next to two escalators. They weren't on, but that's where she'd set up her little camp. She was pregnant, seven months pregnant, and had a two-year-old son, Bryson. And my wife walked right up to her and said, come to our house. And uh, Vashanda said, what? To which I then echoed, what? Uh, what? What are you thinking, woman? We, it was okay if there were students we'd known or teacher friends or these kinds of things, but we, we didn't know Vashanda from anyone, you know? And uh, my wife just pressed on. She was so worried about Bryson sleeping there and rolling down the escalator steps. And Vashanda said that her mom and daughter were left behind on, on the roof, and she wanted to wait and see if they were would be reunited there at the River Center. And so we said, we will be back tomorrow. And, uh, and so by that time, we knew that they were already diverting folks to Texas and to other places, and that all the folks that were going to be at the River Center were there. So we went back, and we got Vashanda, and we brought her in our home. And it was really interesting. It was a great time of, of teaching for me because, uh, you know, there were folks that were like, she'll steal stuff. And I thought, I'll probably see her waddling out of the neighborhood with it, right? <laughs> But the second thing was, what do I have that the Lord has given me? What do I have that's not his? The house is his. The clothes are his. The TV, it's his. If she needs it more than I do, then it's his. There were also people that were concerned because Bryson had the Katrina cough. And they were worried because Arabella, who was less than 18 months at that point, uh, well, she might get the, get the Katrina cough. But you know what I learned is that when... Arabella was four weeks old, and we discovered she had a hole in her heart. And I took that to the Lord and said, Lord, she has a hole in her heart. And he said, I know, I formed her heart. And I was reminded, oh, that's right. Okay, I'm all right, perspective. And then you, you knew about this. We just found out. Go easy on me, you know. But I learned on that day that I could not do a single thing to sustain Arabella's life one bit. And that if Arabella was to get Katrina cough, it would only be because of a providential and sovereign God thought it was best for her. And then whatever he thinks best, he will also give the strength to endure and to journey through. And so it was a great time of sanctification for us. In the middle of that, this guy named Al Jones called. And we had, I was standing in the kitchen, and Vashanda was there, and Tara was there. And Mr. Al said, Landon, uh, we'd like to talk to you. And uh, I pulled the phone away, and I said, Tara, it's Crosspoint. They want to talk to us. And she's like, 
you know? And so uh, the Lord had shut the doors and all the other things, so we said, why not? And so we had a conversation, and, and one of the things that uh, happened for us was we fell in love with the search committee. In the search committee, we found people who had gone to a shelter, Lamar Dixon, and brought people into their home, Sherry Halls. In the search committee, we found uh, Terry and Darcy Moore that had adopted children from multiple uh, uh, ethnicities. And these weren't people you had to convince. These were people you could already do life with. These were people you could come in and lead. And, and we fell in love with the search team. And so we had a conversation. And I remember the question, Mr. <laughs> Mr. The, the question was, what do you think about the Bible? And I was like, I'm for it. Let's keep it, you know. And <laughs> let's, let's do it, you know. Uh, Tom Vandiver asked me, how often will you preach on tithing? And now that we know in five years, how often have I preached on it? Once. Once. As often as the text demands it, was my question. This was my response. As we walk through verse by verse, if the text demands it, that's what we're going to preach. And so we just, we just fell in love and progressed with the search committee and, and agreed to, to move forward and ultimately in, in view of a call. And would you know that on the, the Wednesday that we were supposed to preach, that we were preached, just like we were pregnant. We are a team here. Uh, when uh, on the Wednesday that we were supposed to come and preach in view of a call that Sunday, uh, Tara's home church, First Baptist Tupelo, called and said, hey, would you consider coming up here and being an interim? And it was really funny because uh, we would have been there in a moment. But the Lord's providence and how he worked out timing and how he worked out a place. You know, after Hurricane Katrina, it was tough to get real estate. We were already here, right, right, right over there. And, uh, and, and then with the timing, and, and I just felt in a moment, you know, we would have gone to Tupelo, but, but we just felt like the Lord had ordered these things. And so we progressed on, and, and we had the vote, and there was one no vote, and that bothered Mr. Al more than it bothered me because he couldn't say unanimous. He liked saying unanimous a lot in that process. The search team is unanimous. The search team is unanimous. He would say that often, and so bless his heart, he had to come back in and say it was a nearly unanimous vote, you know. <laughs> And then uh, I remember one of the coolest things was that afternoon we came back, and at that point there was probably about 20 folks doing a Beth Moore study in the fellowship hall on Sunday nights. And, uh, and I remember coming and sitting in and being a part of that, and Jay Curry prayed that night. And one of the things that Jay Curry prayed was uh, he said, Lord, just like Landon said in his sermon this morning about pursuing Christ, and he went, in, went on in the prayer. And for me it was one of the coolest moments because being an itinerant minister, you come in, you preach, you fly out, you don't get to see the effect of the word. And I thought it was the Lord's grace to me that on the very first night uh, to be able to hear Jay articulate something from the sermon. It wasn't about me, but it was just fruit of the word. And it's a precious memory of, of beginning the time. And then Monday morning began, and I, and I realized when I sat in the big mahogany chair that was in my office, what do you do as a pastor? What have these people done? Why have they elected me? They know me not, you know. And, uh, and so there are countless books that you could go and read. Uh, but I found the most comfort in First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. I felt like uh, if there were plans for the church, the Lord knew what those were, and he probably knew best, and we should probably see what that was and follow through with that. Uh, Monday night, uh, that, that very first day, a man named Charles Ray, who was moderator of a thing called the management team, sat in my, came into my office and said, hey, we're doing management team nominations. Uh, who you want to cut out? And I thought, well, I've been on the job 24 hours, so I don't really know these folks, but uh, we can start this process. So I had a management team meeting Monday night. Tuesday night was a Judson meeting, which is now Bagbra. And so Tara should have gotten the clue from the first week, right? That you have management team Monday night, Judson, Bagbra, Tuesday night. And it was really funny. I wore green, lime green tennis shoes to that Judson meeting. And the new pastors got to introduce themselves. And so I introduced myself at Crosspoint, and I said, I've been on the job two days and I'm delighted to be with you folks tonight, you know, and they didn't know what a delight it would be for me to join their ranks, but, uh, uh, you know, interesting things. It, it would be six months later that First Baptist Tupelo would call again, and they would say, we really want you to consider not to be the interim, we want you to consider being our pastor, and it was six months into that, and I just found myself walking on the sidewalk outside of our home going, how could that be? How could you go somewhere for six months and that's it? Mission complete. Good job, Cross Point. And I just said, look, I, I don't think the Lord would, would be in this. I said, you know, it's not that we don't love you guys or, or want to be there, but I just don't see how six months is an effective pastorate. And so so started the journey of the next few years of putting these blinders on. And as churches would contact 
just just putting blinders on to say, I, I don't think the mission's done. I don't think the mission's done. I don't think the Lord had released us yet. And so before you know it, you end up, and it's five years down the road, and, and here you are. And it has been a joy. And so I, I think about the Lord's providence in bringing us here. I think about how we love the pastor's search team's warmth and authenticity. I think about how God has increased my love for you each year. I think about our senior adults. I love our senior adults. And I grew up at a church, we had senior adults, but they were always about the, the trips, you know. And I learned a lot. You, it's not really about youth. You know, senior adults are youth, they're just older. They still fight over seats on the bus. They just get up way earlier to do it, you know. And they're bossy and mean, and, but the food's better, you know. When you, that's the only difference. Senior adults will eat better, but they're, but they're really just youth with gray hair. And they still have issues and bad breath, you know, and all these things. You just deal with it. But I tell you, the senior adults at Crosspoint, for me, have been a blessing because they've modeled service. They've modeled, we've never tried it that way before. Let's try it that way. They've modeled what it means to, to have freedom. And, and I love our senior adults, and I'm, I continue to fall in love with them over and over. Uh, I think about our deacons who continue to model what it means to support the Word. You don't know how refreshing it is to a young pastor to have deacons who want to serve, not run the church. To have deacons who want to take out the trash and kiss people as they come in the door uh, rather than dominate and reign power. And, and how the deacons have been a blessing. And as we've seen those, I think about our young adults with young families, and, and you're in the foxhole with us. You know, I, Mr. Al didn't share a story. This morning we had a parent forum in here. Mr. Al didn't share the story, but he, he shared it with me that there were times when they would drive to church and he was beating whoever was closest to them. And then you all get out of the car and go in the church. Hello, how are you guys? You having a good day? You know? And uh, I don't know whether that story is true, but I know that I'm grateful for it because I feel that so often as we try to navigate a six, a two, and a one-year-old, uh, it is a journey. And I'm grateful for our young families because we're, we're in this together. And, uh, and there were not a lot of us initially, but the Lord has been favorable to us to bring more and more young families. And we're grateful for that. I think about our older adults with teenagers who you guys are blazing trails for us right now. Take good notes because we're, we're going to need them and grateful for your participation. I think about our college students and I'm so glad the Lord continues to bring them and I'm glad that they go out every summer and they go all over the globe and we get to be a part and I have a healthy realization that uh, many of these college students who come, they're not going to stay here forever, but we get the chance church to pour into them for four years, for three years and then ultimately see them bless other congregations. I think about the Shearers, who are a great example, that as they go to Guam, what a blessing they're going to be to a congregation. And part of that is because of how you have poured into the Shearers for four years. And I think about our youth. I'm just glad to see a group. You know, in the early days, there were some rough goings, and, and I'm just glad to see a group. I'm glad to see youth that love missions. I'm glad to see youth. Every time youth lead up here on this stage, they're not the church of tomorrow, friends. They're the church of today. And it matters that you, that you play your part. So I, I'm thankful in all of these things. And I, I've walked down Nostalgia Row, I guess, a little bit here. But just to say, look, I am so grateful that the Lord brought Tara and I here. It's a place where I've been able to form convictions about ecclesiology, church. Convictions about theology. Convictions about the Word and, and what we should be doing. And, and a freedom to lead. And, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, but in all of that, there's one verse that I never forget. And it's Hebrews 13, 17. And I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time here uh, before the chicken gets cold and, uh, and walk through this verse that I never forget. You may be put off by the first phrases, but that's not why I've brought this verse to your mind this morning. It's more the middle parts. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Father, I thank you and your providence that you've brought me to these folks. Thank you for the countless cards and emails and calls through the years of encouragement. Thank you for the gifts. Thank you for the love. Father, I thank you for the difficult times and how you've used it to, uh, for the good of my sanctification and the good of our sanctification. Thank you for the times that you've pushed us to and dig in your word and to line up with your word. Father, we pray that that would continue to increase as we move forward. But I pray now as we encounter Hebrews 13, 17, that as always, if you don't light it up, we won't learn. And so, Father, we need you to light it up and you to speak to us and change us. 
It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. As we, as we think about Hebrews 13, 17, uh, I think there's some things that a congregation should expect of elders, expect of their leaders. Here the word is leaders. And uh, the author of Hebrews was not going to be necessarily coming back to the church that he's written to here, to the folks he's written to. And so he's been, uh, in the last chapter, he's going to refer to the leaders at least three different times, trying to emphasize their responsibilities and their leadership that's here. And uh, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. To encounter that in a Baptist church is, it goes against the grain immediately. And we're going to pick that up at the end. But I want us to uh, begin with what, are, what a congregation should expect of elders. And uh, particularly in this verse, there are two things I never forget. Keeping watch over your soul and those who will have to give an account. I never forget what my job description is. And I never forget that one day I will give a reckoning for it. One day I will stand before the Lord for the time that I've been an under-shepherd of His at Crosspoint. And I never, ever forget that. We're going to move into that. But let's begin with what a congregation should expect of elders. The first part is keeping watch. Elders should be those who are keeping watch over the souls of the folks that are here. Not in the place of Christ, not in the place of the Father and the Spirit, but but watching as uh, an under-shepherd would. Uh, How many of you have ever watched someone else's child? Someone else has placed their child in your custody. Do you feel an extra alertness, an extra desire to return that child with all bones intact? All, all those things. I remember, you know, with our, fir- with our first child, you're so protective with the first child, right? With Arabella, if she coughed, I was like, she's choking! Help her! You know? When she would go to step off our concrete patio, it was like this much. I'd be like, catch her! You know? Now with poor Adoniram, he drops stuff on the ground like, eat it. It's okay, kid. You know? <laughs> So with like the third child, you know, then they're suffering with all these things because you're letting them eat dirt, you know. And, and, but, but it's funny because when I have someone else's child, I may have grown a little slack with my own children as, as you have more, partly because that's survival. But when we have another person's child, I'm never slack. I'm always alert. I'm always vigilant. And I am always keenly aware, friends, you are not my children. You are the Lord's. And I have a stewardship to watch over you, not as my children. You're the Lord's. You belong to someone else. And there is a responsibility that comes from that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes to the elders and he says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. If you were listening very carefully, who did it say the flock belongs to? God. The flock belongs to God. Watch over the flock of God that you've been entrusted to. And I never forget that. I never forget a couple things. I never forget that it's God's people it's God's funds, every one of these dollars that we collect. That's why as a staff, we don't just go out and do staff lunches. These are the Lord's funds. It's the Lord's plan, friends. It's the Lord's power, and it's the Lord's glory. I never forget that as a pastor. It's not about my church. These aren't my dollars. These aren't my plans. We have responsibilities. The Lord has told us what the plan should be. So our responsibility is to continually, continually point back to the plan, point back to the plan. I find some of the language that Paul uses intriguing. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I would submit to you, first of all, that Paul is not struggling with gender identity. He's just trying to present a phrase. I, I don't know a nursing mother that's, that's harsh with her children. There's a provision and there's protection that goes along with that. And Paul says, you know what I felt toward you? You know what we felt toward you? We wanted to provide you. We provide for you. We wanted to protect you. Like a nursing mother, we watched over you. He will say to the church at Galatians, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Again, not struggling with gender identity. He's just using these pictures to say, I'm laboring and I'm laboring because we want to see Christ formed in you. I'm watching over you as if you were my children. I have that regard for you. And in pastoring, there's obviously an element of parenting. Though I am younger than some of you, I'm 33 as of today, though I am younger than some of you, I still have parental concern for all of you that Christ would be fully formed in you, that Christ would be fully formed in you. You want all of God's children to fully grow into Jesus. And that's the desire that we have. 
Keeping watch. Elders are charged here. Keep watch. What does that mean? It means being sober-minded, being clear-minded, right? Being alert, being vigilant, close examination. These are all things that go along in the Bible of what it means to be watchful, being vigilant, being vigilant, being sober-minded, being uh, alert and awake, right? Well, what is it that we are to watch out for? What are some things that might come against God's children? What are some things that might attack them? And I've put a little list there for you. One is deceitful doctrine. There is always the, the fear that deceitful doctrine could lead you astray. Colossians 2.4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He was worried that the church at Colossae would be led astray by plausible arguments that even sounded good. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Or he says in Ephesians 4 to the church at Ephesus, I don't want to see you tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So one of the things elders are to watch over is to make sure that if there's deceitful doctrine, you can recognize it as deceit. You can recognize it's going the other way. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The second thing that comes against us is destructive desires. These are all D's because I was just thinking if Adrian Rogers were alive, what would he say? So you have these deceitful doctrines. You have destructive desires. You know what that is? You don't want God's children loving worthless lovers. You know what you don't want? You don't want God's children loving things that will destroy you. Listen to what Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. And I've got the references there on your outline. You can go back later and journey through them. But listen to what he says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So as an overseer, as a, as a leader, as an elder, you're giving watch over the people. You don't want them to be pulled away by non-truth, and you don't want them to love things that will ultimately destroy them, things that will cause them more harm. As First John says, things that are passing away and they're fleeting. You constantly want to point people back. Let Christ be the sole treasure of your heart. Let Christ be the sole treasure of your heart. That's part of the responsibility of watching over the children. There's one more. There's a devouring devil. There's a devouring devil. First Peter it records, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Could we meditate on that for just a moment? The devil wants to devour you. When that sinks in, you and I should flee to Christ every day and all through the day. And that sinks in that you realize there's a devil that is working. He doesn't take days off. Spiritual warfare is not just the devil. It's the flesh, the world, and the devil. But there are three things that are working against us. And you can know that the intent is not good. The devil wants to completely devour you and rip you apart. And so here's how they stand, though. It says, resist him firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. So there's a devil that wants to devour God's children, but they're to resist him standing firm in your faith. So that leads me to the question as an elder, how do God's children become firm in their faith? How do they become firm in their faith? Paul answers that when he wrote the letter to the church at Colossae. And he says, uh, just as you are rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith, he says, comma, just as you were taught. Just as you were taught. Do you know how folks recognize untruth? Do you know how they recognize lovers that will cost them more than they're worth? And you know how they recognize a devil that's trying to devour them? Well, they stand firm in their faith as they've been taught. They've been taught. Well, what is it they're taught? That gets us back to Hebrews 13. And if we're going to be elders that watch over your soul, I never forget this verse. There are two components that are a part of that that he lists 10 verses prior to that. So look back in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Look at his first reference to leaders. There are two things that go along with watching that are very important and what you should expect from elders. So elders are keeping watch. And then here's how... With these two ways, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do you know how God's children become firm in their faith? It comes from leaders who preach the word and live the word. It comes from leaders who preach the word and live the word. And so a part of 
helping watch over the children so they're not swept by all these other things. Just give them the word. Paul challenges then in Hebrews 13, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. But he says in 1 Timothy 4, which these are the theme verses for the seminary in Uganda that we sponsor each month, still sending $1,000 a month to help those brothers and what's going on there. They're partners in the gospel force. This is the theme verse for their seminary, 1 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He says, preach the word. When Paul gets ready to tell the church at Ephesus by, he tells the leaders by, but he does it at Miletus because he doesn't want to go all the way back up to Ephesus. And it's a powerful time. And, and I imagine should the Lord ever lead me away from you folks, I imagine for me it would be an Acts 20 moment where there's weeping. And, and literally once he says his, kind of, his final words, he literally has to be ripped apart from them. But he says this in Acts 20. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I've preached to you the whole counsel of God. I've given you the whole counsel of God. Listen, you want elders, you want teachers. What should a pastor do? Pastors should watch over you, not just run the campus. Not make sure the grass is cut. Not make sure flowers are there. Those things matter. Logistics matter. But according to the job description in Hebrews at this point, we're supposed to watch over you and give you the word. Give you the word. Paul does this in Colossians 1. I want you to hold your place in Hebrews and look at Colossians 1 because I want you to pray that I would be this kind of pastor. I want you to pray that I would be this kind of pastor. Tyler and Crystal are here. Tyler and Crystal Tellis are here. And Tyler and I had some time together a couple of weeks ago and walked through a little bit of this passage in Colossians. But I want you to see what Paul does. In verse 24, here's what Paul says. Now rejo- rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. It was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Watch what Paul does. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present a fourth of them mature in Christ. Right? Is that what he says? Oh, it's these pesky everyone's that keep coming back in the life of a pastor. Paul says we warn everyone because we want to see everyone mature in Christ. You see, a pastor has to have regard for everyone. And we'll see in a moment why he's going to be given an account for them. And we want to see all of them mature. So look at what Paul says in 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There used to be a joke, you know, that a pastor worked two days a week, right? Sundays and Wednesdays, or even worse, it would just be Sundays. You know, the joke that, I won't be a pastor, you only work on Sundays, play golf the rest of the time, right? Well, that was my home pastor. But I would say that not all pastors do that. Pastors who have a healthy understanding of Hebrews 13, uh, that won't be characteristic of their life. Colossians 1.29 will, though, for this I toil struggling but look at how it is with all his energy that he powerfully works in me yeah i would love that you would pray that i would be one who continues to proclaim christ to encourage you towards christ so that you might be mature in christ and though there's toil and there's struggle that's part of the job description for pastoral ministry it is with the strength of christ he says his strength that he works in me i would love that you would pray that as elders we would serve in the power of christ and not our own power and here's the fruit of that Here's the fruit when that takes place. Look in verse 5. Paul says, For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. And the word order and firmness are military terms that literally mean shoulder to shoulder and one behind the other. And so Paul says, I'm not there with you, but you're standing firm in the gospel. You know how they stood firm? Because there was a guy who poured into them and labored and struggled and continually pointed them to Christ, to Christ, to Christ. And so that's what you want a pastor to do, one who gives you the word. And the joy has been, as we think back over to five years, I think about this. In the preaching, we've covered John, Obadiah, Sermon on the Mount. Who can forget Wednesday nights with First Peter? Remember when we started that journey to God's elect, chosen through the foreknowledge of God? That was an interesting night, all right? 
Nehemiah, Malachi, Galatians, Philippians, Psalms, Exodus. In our Bible study, we've done Philippians, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Hebrews, Genesis, Acts, Ephesians, Isaiah, Matthew, Minor Prophets, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, James, Psalms. And what are we about to start in two weeks? Revelation, right? And you know what's incredible? One of my favorite parts of being pastor here was when we started Matthew. And you remember as Matthew begins, there's a list of names. Does anyone know what we call those names? What do we call those names? Genealogy is the big word, right? There's a genealogy of Jesus' family. And it's funny because the books we use said you may not know a lot of these names. But did you know that I had three people from our church come up to me and say, I knew the names because we'd studied Genesis and First and Second Samuel and Isaiah. And three different people said, I knew the names. And you don't know what an encouragement that is, not as, as a pastor, but as God using his word in the lives of his people to build on top of one another. And as I always tell you, friends, this is why I don't do special studies on the Da Vinci Code. This is why I don't do special preaching series on the golden compass. I don't have time to teach on non-truth. If we teach you truth, you'll recognize the junk. You'll recognize the junk. So a part of keeping watch is giving you the word. And you want pastors who give you the word. Second, as according to Hebrews 13, 7, you want pastors who live the word. You want pastors who live the word. Paul, when he gets ready to leave, those same leaders in Acts 20, he says in verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. I love that Paul's first appeal is not, you remember what great sermons I taught you. Paul's first appeal is, remember those great morning devotionals? His first appeal is, remember how I lived from the first time I set foot here until now? That's what we want to be able to say. And if there's anywhere I feel the challenge, it's this in my own life, to live what I preach. Ezra 7.10 says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it to others. And if there's anything that you would pray for me, pray that I live this word. Pray that it's evident. I won't be perfect. Some of you know that already. There's nothing worse than when the pastor sins and the pastor makes mistakes and, and it's going to happen. So one of the things we don't expect, hopefully, is pastoral perfection. But pastoral progress, one of the things that Paul challenges Timothy is he says, let them see your progress. So one of the things that you can pray as we move towards the next years, progress, that I would continue to progress in the Lord, as well as our other elders. Why does it matter that you keep a close watch as a leader on what you teach and what you live? Paul says that if you keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, he says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. It matters that your doctrine and your life are the same and that you keep a close watch because it's not just about me, it's about us. It's about us. And there are responsibilities that come along with that. So as you consider what you should pray for the elders, pray for elders to keep watch. Pray for elders to preach the word. Pray for elders to live the word. I want you to see the seriousness of serving them back in Hebrews 13. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Those who will have to give an account. Did you ever uh, have a grade that you knew was coming home, but you, you weren't excited about when your parents were going to find out about that? You know? I had a friend that had an F on his report card, and he thought the best time to bring out that report card is when myself and a couple other friends were at his house, right? And I'll never forget his dad saying, boys, come down here. You know you're welcome any time at our house, just not tonight. <laughs> and so and we rolled out there, and we're like, what was he thinking, man? He pulled that out on us. He's going to die, you know? Uh, listen. There's nothing more sobering for a 28-year-old pastor to read Hebrews 13 and know I'm going to give an account for my service here. And it will be an eternity. And that's one of the things about pastors. You really don't get the report card till the end. You get some progress reports here and there, but the final grade, as Ligon Duncan challenges us with at Together for the Gospel, the final grade comes at the end and there's a sobering reality that i never forget and so it's not just about a job it's not just about a paycheck for my children it's an eternally significant matter which i would encourage you so's your job your job is, is sacred as well and how you do it for the lord's glory 
but it's very clear that I'm going to be giving an account for this time as well as my brethren elders. And the question is going to be, have I led his church to line up his, with his word? Do you know why we push for elders? Because I see elders in the New Testament. Do you know why I lead us to verse-by-verse study? Because the most important thing is that we line his church up with his word. I want the Lord, when, when he says, why did you do this? I want to be able to say, you know why we pray in our service? Because 1 Timothy 2 says, I urge first of all that prayer and intercessions be made. You want to know why we did this? Because Romans says this. That, that's what I want my defense to be to the Lord, that we lined his church up with his word, that we led for his glory and not our own. We're going to give an account. Now, uh, I don't know about you. I, I went to LSU. There's a second part of this, why it matters and the serious. Uh, yes, we're going to give an account. But there, there's a second part of who is it that we're accounting for. So when I went to LSU, one the, the, uh, my degree was in management, but I took several accounting classes as part of being a business major. And the accounting exams at that point at LSU were departmental. And it would always be interesting when you were taking the exam. And if your professor had not taught you well, uh, by being departmental, it meant every professor contributed to the making of that test. So if your professor had not taught you well, then you were already penalized when you got to that test because there would be some things that were on that test that you didn't see coming, right? And I couldn't stand those things. And I just happened to have some of the not-as-gifted accounting teachers. And it was a rough go for a while. I want to say to you all, I don't want that to happen when I give an account in heaven. I don't want there to be this surprise element of, was I accountable for them? I didn't even know they were here. I didn't even know they were a part of this. And that's why we always press... Friends, if elders are going to give an account, we need to know who we're accounting for. Membership matters. Membership is more than just coming here on Sunday and rolling out. It is about we're living lives together. We want to see Christ fully formed in us and you. And we want to know who is it that we're giving accounts for. It's been said that one guy was upset because his friends got larger churches to pastor coming out of seminary. And an older, wiser gentleman said, uh, when you stand before the Lord and give an account for that small congregation, you will know you had enough. You will know you had enough, people. And, uh, and so I, I would say, look, this is also why elders are necessary, because one guy cannot effectively shepherd 300 folks by himself. Number two, this is why small groups are necessary, because you know who is supposed to actually be doing the ministry? Raise your hand if you know who's supposed to be doing the ministry of the church. Raise your hand if you think it's you. Yeah, that's it. You're right. Ephesians 4 says you are supposed to be doing the work of the ministry. Our job is to equip you to do it. What happens in a lot of churches is the pastors do the ministry and it bottlenecks the church. And Ephesians 4 doesn't happen. And so our job is not to do all of the ministry. Our job is to equip you to be able to do that ministry. That's why small groups are essential, friends. That's where we really minister to one another. We find out needs. We sacrifice for one another. And again, just want to encourage you, if you're not in a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night small group, please join. Be a part of these things, okay? Let's uh, get then to the final point, what elders should expect of a congregation. Back in Hebrews 13, 17, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So ultimately, it says that you should obey and submit. But this isn't just because we're tyrants. That obey, obedience and submission is to the Lord, ultimately. I didn't write Hebrews. If you have an issue with this verse, my first defense is I didn't write Hebrews. The Lord purchased the church, and he's free to set the church up how he wants. But I would put two conditions on this obedience and this submission. As we teach the word and as we live the word, I think we should expect you're you're following along with that. When we don't teach the word and when we don't live the word, you shouldn't follow us to the grocery store, all right? You don't follow elders anywhere when they're not teaching the word and they're not living the word. But if we have folks that are teaching the word and living the word, why wouldn't you want to follow those kind of folks? Why? Are they going to lead you somewhere? So I thought what I'd like to do is show you a little bit of where I hope to lead you and, and the other elders where we hope to lead you. And I want to take just a few moments. Turn back to Romans 15. I want to show you where we want to lead you. All right? The first place I'll lead you is to the barbecue right after this. Follow me. I know the way. 
Should we go to a buffet? I can teach you some even better skills. Romans 15, verse 14. Here's what Paul writes. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. You know where I want to lead you, church? To Romans 15, 14. That we might be a church that's full of goodness, that's filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That's the place that I want to lead us to. You look further in Romans, uh, look in the very next chapter, verse six, chapter 16, verse 19. Here's what he says about the church at Rome. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. This is a place where I want to lead us, folks, that our obedience goes before us in Baton Rouge. We don't have to say a word, but our obedience is known in the region, and it's a cause for rejoicing because the people are obeying. And look at what he says. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Remember what we covered last week? Clinging to what's good, being glued. That's what that word means, being glued to what's good and hating evil, not just avoiding it, hating evil. And here he brings it up again, that, we, that you would be uh, wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. But Romans 15 and 16, this is one place I want to lead you. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, to the right. And if, if you don't want that, you don't want to be able to instruct each other full of goodness, then I would receive an email about that. If that's not where you want this church to head, then I'll take that. You want to head towards evil? Okay. I will just follow up with a visit and invite you to go somewhere else. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Here's something else, somewhere else that I hope the elders can lead you. Here's what Paul says about the church at Thessalonica in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. I really want you guys to share the word in Macedonia. No, I'm just kidding. I want the word to sound forth from you. That's what I want. I want the word to sound forth from you. He says, For not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I think this is a good aim for a church, don't you? That the word of the Lord sounds forth from us, that our faith in God goes out so that there's no need to even advertise on a billboard. It's evident. We're walking it. We're living it. If you'll turn to the right one more time, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the, inflict, and in the afflictions that you are enduring. I'm not necessarily wanting to lead us to affliction, but you know what? I do hope that we're leading you that if we are required to suffer, that we suffer well. We suffer well, that we glorify God in our suffering, not bring reproach and shame even in our suffering, that we would be equipped to do so that our faith is growing abundantly, and it says, and that love, every one of you for another, is increasing. Does anyone think these are bad ideas? Because this is where I want us to go. And not because I've written this. This is what the Lord says of his church. And don't forget, I'm going to give an account. This is where I want us to head. I want to show you one final one. It has to do with something that we're going to give you today. Turn back to Acts. The last one I'll show you. I want to say brief words here, and then we'll close out with one final point from Hebrews. One final place that I want to show you. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So one of the things that I think is interesting about Paul, what we would call one of our first missionaries, uh, he didn't go into the service saying, I want to be a missionary. He was a part of the church there at Antioch, and they were all praying, and they were all seeking, and they were fasting, and the Spirit communicated, I want these two guys. You realize it could have been Simeon, it could have been Menaean, it could have been these other leaders that were there, Paul and Paul and uh, Barnabas were, Saul and Barnabas were just two of the leaders, but uh, this is who the Spirit instructed and said, look, we want, to, we want to send them apart. How many of you think that someone thought that Saul was probably a good teacher? How many of you think that Saul was probably gifted in the Old Testament? You don't have to read his writings to, to doubt that. How many of you think someone probably thought, we need him here, he would teach a great equipping class on Old Testament survey? How many of you think somewhere along the way those thoughts probably came? Here's where I want to encourage us, friends. I want to lead us to the place that when the Lord says, set aside these people, whoever they are in our midst, the best of the best, we're willing to set them aside and send them off for the cause of Christ. The reason I share that is because at the end of this service, we're going to give you a proposal. It's right here in this box on the front row. We've got one for each family. And the elders and the management team are bringing a proposal to you that Starting in January, we would send Pastor Byron to Grace full-time. And that any of our folks that would feel called to go and replant this church with him would go and be a part of this work for the cause of Christ. And I know that some of you are going to say, well, we need Pastor Byron here. He's good on the piano. We need Pastor Byron here. He's a great administrator. We need Pastor Byron here because he's gifted in so many other ways. When the reality, friends, is what we need is obedience. And what we have to trust is Pastor Byron doesn't belong to us. He belongs to the Lord. And there's a kingdom that we're working for. And we're going to give time for you to discuss. And you may feel differently. And you're going to have a time next Sunday after the service, should the Lord give it to us, to discuss and ask as many questions as you want. We're not shoving this down your throat. We're just praying and asking that we feel led and we ask that you would consider this and pray toward this. And it is a kingdom move. And that's where I would say to you, you know, right around the corner from us is a very large church. And there's nothing wrong with that. In the New Testament, 3,000 were added in one day. That's a mega church, friends. Later on, 5,000 were added in another day. That's a mega church. But I want you to know that our strategy, my, my thought is we may never have 1,000 folks. We may never have 600 folks here. But what if we plant 600 churches? But what if we send out 1,000 folks to start 1,000 churches? That's my vision. If, if that's not yours, I'm just sharing with you where I am on this. Because of Acts 13, friends, that we want to be willing and because there is need. There is need all around. Not only in our city, but we talked about last week, Turkey having limited access to the gospel. Do you know the way Turkey gets access to the gospel? People go and live there and share the gospel. And so, friends, the, the prayer is, this, this is where I want to lead us, that we would be an Acts 13 service, that if the Lord says, we need Al and Mary Gaden Jones to leave this place and go start this work on the other side of the river, we're not going to be the ones to say, well, we love his Sunday school class. We're going to be the ones that say, Lord, we're going to be obedient, and we're going to trust you to provide. We're going to trust you to provide. So we don't want to just be a mega gathering. We want to be a mega equipping and sending place now that that may have spoiled a bit of our lunch let's go back to the last point let's go back to the last point in hebrews 13 this is where we'll close we'll move to a time of offertory and then our community time and some announcements hebrews 13 17 one more time obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account and here's the next sentence. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, it seems in pastoral ministry there are some folks whose spiritual gift is to cause the pastor to groan, right? And they use it. They exercise their gift. They're afraid they may lose it if they don't use it. Um, hear the word of the Lord and what it's saying. If you're intentionally causing your pastors to groan rather than rejoice, 
it's no advantage to you. It's no advantage to you. And I don't know of anyone in our midst who's doing that. There's no one that's a constant thorn in my side that I'm praying, Lord, please remove them. That isn't happening. But one of the things that helps pastors rejoice is when you know the gospel, when you live the gospel, and when you share the gospel. There's nothing more grievous than when I choose sin and you choose sin. And my heart breaks every time you choose sin and I choose sin. That's a part of groaning for me, not just people who complain. There's a groaning when our people don't seem to get it or when we keep being dominated by sins that we somehow think Christ is not powerful enough to help us overcome. So we want to live the gospel. We want to know the gospel, live the gospel, share the gospel. We want to make disciples. We want to risk much for the kingdom of God. These things cause pastors to have joy. And I would encourage you, you know, we're we're encouraged that a, a laborer is worth his wages. But one of the greatest things you can share with me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's one of the greatest blessings of, as the Spirit produces these things in us that you share from the overflow of that harvest of righteousness in this journey. So, friends, uh, I am grateful for 60 months of being able to journey together. I don't think I'm the same man I was when I started because the Lord has continued to refine me and my hope is that we're not the same church, that we're deeper, that we're further, that we look more like Christ. And I don't know how long the Lord will allow us to journey together. Who, who knows what the Lord does in our own journeys? You're 33 and you think the Lord moves. My grandfather died at 52 and my father died at 58. So I've never had long-term thoughts of what am I going to do in my 60s? I think if I turn 60, I, I won't know what to do really in my mind. So, I, so I, all that to say, all I know is we have today. We have today. We are to be faithful today. And if the Lord gives me this day, these are the places that I want to lead us to. And my hope is that you will continue to be as affectionate and supporting as you've been, but also that you will continue to grow and progress in Christ. And I am grateful in the Lord's providence of bringing me to you. I want to close in a word of prayer, and we're going to transition. After I pray, we're going to transition to the offering. And if you're a guest here, the way we do our offering is we have baskets that are here from Rwanda to remind us that God is a global God, and we ask our friends and family to group up and to actually participate in the bringing of the offering. And, but if you're a guest, we don't ask you to give anything, but we would ask that you pray for God to use his dollars for his glory and his kingdom, and that they would be distributed. So we'll move next in the offertory, and then after that, we'll come back with a couple of things to pray over and a couple more announcements, and we'll close. Father, thank you for today. God, thank you for the privilege of being able to call, be called to Crosspoint. God, thank you that in your sovereignty, you didn't lead us to Cleveland, Tennessee, and thank you that in your providence, you didn't lead us to Asheville, North Carolina, or even Tupelo, Father, but you, you led us to this place, and for the past five years, you've You've shaped my convictions about theology and ecclesiology from your word and been given to people who are open and receptive to your word. And Father, we realize that we are not done. We realize that there's more to come. And and if things go through with this replanting of Grace Baptist Church and, and sending Pastor Byron out, then we'll be entering once again into another new chapter of Crosspoint's journey. But Father, we realize very keenly, particularly I do, that at the end of all the chapters, there will be a reckoning. There will be an accounting. And Father, I pray that as you have burned this verse in my heart to where I never forget it, that you would keep it there. And that I would never forget it in the days that come forth. That I would be a pastor who watches over the souls and cares about them. Not pesky about building numbers, but because of concern for the cause of Christ. Father, that we would know who we're giving an account to and that membership would be very precious here and important and clear. Father, I pray that you would help us to preach the word and to live the word. And Father, I pray for our people that as we lead in the word, they would follow. But if we lead away from the word or away from you, they would be the first ones not to go anywhere. Father, I pray that you would help the service here to be full of joy as it's been so often over these years rather than groaning, 
to see people who are choosing Christ, choosing Christ, walking in Christ, deeply rooted in Christ, established in Christ. Father, we pray for even more joy as you use your word and your spirit in our lives. I pray now as we'll worship you through the offering that you would be pleased and that we would be cheerful and sacrificial givers. And I pray that you would use these dollars, your dollars, for your kingdom. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.